Section 11 of Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Five Years of My Life, 1894-1899 by Alfred Dreyfus. Translated from the French. Section 11. Devil's Island, September 1896 to March 1897. Thus the days dragged on, sad and sorrowful, during the first period of my captivity in the Ile du Salut. I received every three months a few of the books which were sent me by my wife, but I had no physical occupation. The nights especially, which in that climate last nearly twelve hours, were drearily prolonged. In the month of July, 1895, I had asked permission to buy a few carpenter's tools. A categorical refusal was the answer from the director of the prison service, under the pretext that the tools might afford a means of escape. I failed to see myself escaping on a carpenter's plane from an island where I am kept under scrutiny night and day. In the autumn of 1896, the regime, already so severe, became more rigorous still. On the 4th of September, my jailers received from M. Lebon, Minister of Colonies, the order to keep me, until further notice, confined to my hut through the 24 hours, with the double boucle at night, to surround the space left for my walk close around my hut with a solid palisade, and to set another guard in my hut in addition to the one already there. Besides this, they withheld all letters and packages sent to me, and transmission of my correspondence was henceforth ordered to be made only in copies of the originals. Conformably to these instructions, I was shut up night and day without a minute's exercise. This absolute confinement was continued during the whole time needed for the bringing of the lumber and the construction of the palisade, that is to say, for nearly two months and a half. The heat that year was particularly torrid and was so great in the hut that the guards made complaint after complaint, declaring that they felt their heads bursting. It became necessary on their account to have their quarters in the shed attached to my house, sprinkled every day with water. As for myself, I literally melted. Dating from the 6th of September, I was put in the double boucle at night, and this torment, which lasted nearly two months, was of the following description. Two irons in the form of a U were fixed by their lower parts to the sides of the bed. In these irons, an iron bar was inserted, and to this were fastened two boucle clasps. At the extremity of the bar on one side there was a head, and at the other a padlock, so that the bar was fastened into the irons and consequently to the bed. Therefore, when my feet were inserted in the two rings, it was no longer possible for me to move about. I was fastened in an unchangeable position to my bed. The torture was hardly bearable during those tropical nights. Soon, also the rings, which were very tight, lacerated my ankles. The hut was surrounded by a palisade over eight feet high, and distant not quite five feet from it. This palisade was much higher than the little grated window of the hut 
which was hardly three and a half feet above the ground. Outside of this first palisade, which was one of defense, was a second one built quite as high, and that, like the first, hid everything from my sight. After some three months of absolute confinement to the seventeen square yards of my hut, I received permission to go about during the middle of the day, always accompanied by the armed guard, in the little plot of ground between the two palisades. There was no shadow or cloud. The burning sun blazed directly overhead. Up to the 4th of September, 1896, I had occupied my hut only at night and during the hottest hours of the day. Except in the hours which I gave to my little walks about the 2,000 square feet of the island which was reserved to me, I often sat in the shade of the hut facing the sea, and though my thoughts were sad and preoccupied, and though I often shook with fever, I at least had the consolation of looking upon the sea and letting my eyes wander over its waves, often feeling my soul in the days of storm rise up with its furious waters. But from the 4th of September, 1896, the sight of the sea and of all the outer world was shut off, and I stifled in a hut where there was no longer air or light. In the course of the month of June, 1896, I had had violent attacks of fever, followed by congestion of the brain. During one of these nights of pain and fever, I tried to get up, but fell helpless to the floor and lay there unconscious. The guard on duty had to lift me up, limp and covered with blood. During the days which followed, my stomach refused all food. I grew much thinner, and my health was grievously shaken. I was still extremely weak when the arbitrary and inhumane measures of the month of September, 1896, were taken, and as a result I had a relapse. It was under such conditions that I thought I should not be able to go further, for whatever the will and energy of a man may be, human strength has a limit, and this limit had been reached. So I stopped my diary with the request that it should be given to my wife. It was just as well, for a few days afterward all my papers were seized. I now had in my possession only a limited quantity of paper, each sheet numbered and signed as before, and a new rule provided that, as each sheet was written on, it should be given up, and until it was handed over I could obtain no further supply. But on one of these long nights of torture, when, riveted to my bed with sleep far from my eyes, I sought my guiding star, my guide in moments of supreme resolve. I saw all at once the light before me illuminating for me my duty. Today, less than ever, have you the right to desert your post. Less than ever have you the right to shorten, even by a single hour, your wretched life. Whatever the torments they inflict on you, you must march forward until they throw you into your grave. You must stand up before your executioners so long as you have a shadow of strength, a living wreck to be kept before their eyes by the unassailable sovereignty of the soul which they cannot reach. Thereupon I resolved to keep up the struggle with more energy than ever. During the next period from the month of September 1896, until August 1897, 
the hourly surveillance became daily more rigorous. At the beginning, the number of the guards besides the chief was five. It was raised to six and then to ten in the course of the year 1897. It was still further increased later. Until 1896, I received every three months the books sent by my wife. From September 1896, this sending of books was stopped. I was then notified, it is true, that I might ask every twelve weeks for twenty books to be bought at my expense. The first time I made such a request, the books did not reach me for several months. The second time, the books were still longer in reaching me. My third request was never even acknowledged. Henceforth, I had to content myself with the books in my possession. This little library comprised, besides a certain number of literary and scientific reviews, and a few volumes of current literature, Scherer's Studies in Contemporary Literature, Lanson's History of Literature, a few of Balzac's works, Barras' Memoirs, Janine's Essays in Criticism, A History of Painting, A History of France, Augustine Thierry's Merovingians, the seventh and eighth volumes of Lavis and Rambaud's General History from the Fourth Century to Our Own Days, Montaigne's Essays, and, best of all, the complete works of Shakespeare. I had never before understood the great poet so well as I did during these tragic days. I read and reread, and realized for the first time the tremendous dramatic power of Hamlet and King Lear. I also applied myself to sciences, but not possessing the necessary books in mathematics, I made up for myself the elements of the integral and differential calculus. Thus, for moments, always too short, alas, I compelled my thoughts to dwell on topics far removed from those which habitually engrossed my conscious moments. But my books were, after a little while, in a wretched condition. Insects laid their eggs in them and devoured them. Vermin hatched out everywhere in my hut. Mosquitoes swarmed in the rainy season, ants in all seasons, the latter in such considerable numbers that I had to protect my table by placing the legs in old tin cans filled with petroleum. Water was no barrier, for the ants formed a pontoon with their bodies across its surface, and when the chain was complete, other ants passed over it as on a bridge. The most harmful of my creeping visitors was the spider crab, whose bite is poisonous. This reptile resembles a crab in body, while the long, wide-spreading legs are those of a spider. The size is about that of a man's hand. I killed any number in my hut, into which they came through the holes in roof and walls. After the severe shock to my system of the month of September 1896, I had a period of despair, followed by a determined reaction in which all my willpower was brought to bear on preserving my steadfastness and composure. In October, I wrote to my wife, Ile de Salut, October 3rd, 1896. I have not yet received the mail of August, but by the English mail I must send you a few words, an echo of my great love. Last month I wrote you, laying bare my heart and telling all my thoughts. There is nothing that I can add. I hope that the help you are asking for will be given you, to the end that I may soon learn that light has at last been let in upon this horrible affair. In the face of our sufferings our courage should grow greater. 
we must not recriminate or complain, but must ask, indeed demand, light on this tragedy, that he or they whose victims we are be unmasked. If I write to you often and at great length, it is because there is something that I would express better than I do express it. It is that, strong in our consciences, we must lift ourselves high above all this, without complaint, like sensitive, honorable people who are suffering a martyrdom to which they may succumb. We must simply do our duty. If my part of this duty is to stand fast as long as I can, your part of it, the part of you all, is to demand that light shall penetrate our gloom. Alfred. Il de Salut, October 5, 1896. I have just received your dear letters of August, as well as letters from all the family, and it is under the profound impression not only of all the sufferings that we all endure, but of the pain that I have caused you by my letter of July 6th that I write to you. Ah, dear Lucy, how weak a creature man is, how cowardly and egotistical he is at times. When I wrote as I did, I was, I think I told you, a prey to fevers that burned body and brain. Then in my distress when I received no letter, when I had need of a friendly hand, of a kindly face, I had to cry out to you, for I could cry to no one else. Afterward I regained possession of myself and became again what I had been, what I shall remain to my last breath. You must understand that the only counsel I can give you is that which is suggested by my heart, and such as I have developed in my preceding letters. You are all better placed, you have better advisers, and you must know better than I could tell you what you must do. Alfred. The letter from my wife which I received the 5th of October, 1896, was dated the 13th of August. It was the only one of all the letters my wife had written during that month which reached me. I take from it this simple passage. I have just received your letter of the 6th of July, and I write you with my eyes still swollen with tears. Poor, poor dear husband, what a calvary you are enduring. It is so atrocious, so frightful, that merely the thought of it drives me crazy. Lucy. None of her letters written in September ever reached me. In December, of all my wife's letters of the month of October, I received but one, that of October 10th, of which the following is an extract. I am waiting with keen anxiety for letters from you. Only think, I have had no news of you since the 9th of August, that is, for two months and a half. Long weeks of anxiety they are that pass between the mails, and each day's delay brings me new anguish. Lucy. On the 4th of January, 1897, I wrote to Lucy. I have just received your letters of November, also those of the family. The emotion they cause me is indescribable. Your thoughts are mine, my dear Lucy. My thoughts never leave you and our dear children. My heart, you know it, is still the heart of a soldier, indifferent to physical suffering, who holds honor above all else who has resisted this incredible uprooting of everything that makes life possible, who has borne it all because he is a father and must see that honor is restored to the name his children bear. I have already written you at length. I have tried to sum it all up to you, 
to explain to you why my confidence and my faith are so absolute. My confidence in the efforts of one and all is fully fixed. For, believe it, be absolutely certain of it, the appeal that I have again made in the name of our children has revealed to those to whom I appealed a duty which true-hearted men will never attempt to evade. On the other hand, I know well the sentiments that animate you all. I know them too well ever to think that any one of you will ever lag as long as the truth remains in darkness. Cheer up until the brute is run to earth. But alas, as I have told you, though my confidence is absolute, the energies of the heart and brain have limits when an ordeal so appalling has been borne so long. I know also what you suffer, and that is horrible. It is not in your power to abridge my martyrdom, our martyrdom. The government alone possesses means of investigation powerful enough to do it. If it does not wish to see a Frenchman who asks from his country nothing but justice, succumb under the weight of so unmerited a fate. I am hoping, then, that the government will lend you its cooperation. Whatever may become of me, be brave and strong always. I embrace you with all the strength of my love, and I embrace also our dear children. Alfred. I quote from letters received from my wife at this time the following passages. Paris, November 12, 1896. I have just received your good letters of the 3rd and 5th of October. I am still under their influence and happy to have abandoned myself for a few minutes to the sweet emotions which your words cause me. I pray you, my beloved husband, do not think of my grief or of the suffering I may endure. As I have said to you already, do not consider me at all, for my heart would be wrung did I add by my complaints one single pang to your torments. You need all your strength, all your courage to hold out in this moral struggle and to maintain yourself against the physical strain of the climate and all the privations which are imposed upon you. Paris, November 24, 1896. I wish I could come and talk with you every day, but what is the use of repeating always the same thing? I know very well that my letters are all alike, but they are all steeped in the same idea, the only idea that fills us all, and that in which center our own lives, those of our children, and the future of the whole family. Like you, I can give myself up to but one thing, to your rehabilitation. Apart from this fixed idea which haunts me, nothing interests, nothing touches me. Lucy. Then, in February, Paris, December 15, 1896, I was in hopes of receiving again this month some letters from you. I looked forward with joy to the good talks we should have, but not a word. So I have taken up your letters of the month of October and read and reread them. Lucy. Paris, December 25, 1896. Once again I am going to send off my mail for you, with bitter chagrin that I am unable to give you the news you long for, the news which we all await anxiously. I know this eternal lengthening out of your sufferings will be for you a new disappointment. That is why I am doubly distressed. Poor dear, my heart sickens at the thought that our utmost exertions have not, as yet, been able to shorten your torment by a single instant. Lucy. In March, 1897, 
they made me wait until the 28th of the month for my wife's letters of January. For the first time, mere copies of her letters were handed to me. How far this text, written out by a hired clerk, represented the original, is a question I cannot answer. Author's Note Since I wrote these lines, I have applied to the Ministry of Colonies for the originals of my wife's letters, both those which never reached me, and those which I received only in copies, and also for all my writings during my stay in the Ile du Diable, of which each leaf of paper, numbered and signed page by page, was taken away as soon as finished, before more paper was given me. All that was written by me at the Ile du Diable has been found and returned, but of the numerous letters from my wife which reached me not at all, or only in copies, only four have been given back, all the others having been destroyed by the order of Monsieur Le Bon, then Minister of Colonies. End of author's note. I felt keenly this new outrage, coming after so many others, but though it wounded me to the depths of my soul, nothing could weaken my determination. I wrote to my wife, Ile du Salut, March 28, 1897. I have just received a copy of two January letters from you. You complain that I do not write more at length, but I sent you many letters towards the end of January. Perhaps by this time they have reached you. You ask me again, dear Lucy, to tell you about myself. Ah, I cannot. When one's sufferings are so sharp and one's soul so utterly miserable, one cannot bear to think, though that is all one can do. You will forgive me if I have not always been self-controlled. At times it was more than I could endure alone. Such absolute isolation is terrible. But today, darling, as yesterday, let us put recriminations behind us. This life is nothing. A pure soul that has a sacred duty to fulfill must rise above suffering. Have courage. Have courage. Look straight before you neither to the right nor to the left, but steadfastly to the end. I know well that you too are but human, yet when grief becomes too great, when trials still to come seem too hard for you to bear, look into the faces of our children and say to yourself that you must live to be with them and care for them until the day when our country shall acknowledge what I have been and am. What I wish to repeat to you with a voice that you must always hear is courage, courage. Your patience, your resolution, that of all of us, must never tire until the full truth is revealed. I cannot fill my letters full enough of the love that my heart holds for you all. That I have been able to withstand so much agony of soul, such misery and strain, is because I have drawn strength from the thought of you and the children. Alfred. From the two letters written by my wife in January, copied by some clerk, and not received until the 28th of March, I give the following excerpts. Today more than ever I need to draw near to you, and to talk to you of our trials and of our hopes. This day is all the sadder, in that it recalls to me happy memories now so far away. I must pass the whole day in speaking with you, it will seem to me shorter and less bitter. I cannot again give voice to those hopes repeated so often and so wearily. I can only pray with all my strength 
for that long-deferred moment when we shall at last be able to live in peace, when I can fold you in my arms and call you by a name once more honored by all. Let us hope this new year will bring us the realization of our prayers. In this continual suspense in which I live, your letters are my only respite. They are something of yourself, a part of your soul, which seeks me out to console me during a long month. Lucy I did not learn from the few copied letters I received of the events passing at this time in France. I recall them briefly. The articles in the Eclair of September 15, 1896, disclosing the communication in court to my judges alone of a secret document. The courageous initiative of Bernard Lazar, who in November 1896 published his pamphlet, A Judicial Error, publication by the Matin of November 10, 1896, of the facsimile of the Baudereau, the Castellan interpolation of November 1896 in the Chamber of Deputies. I learned of these events only on my return in 1899. Neither my wife nor anyone outside of the Ministry of War knew of the discovery of the real traitor by Lieutenant Colonel Picard, nor of the heroic conduct of this admirable officer, and the criminal maneuvers which prevented him from bringing to an issue his work on behalf of truth and justice. End of section 11